God, would you come and do something surprising and helpful and um, overflowing for us as a church? And would you do that same thing for us personally with whatever our needs are as we came in? Uh, Would you come and take us somewhere helpful and good and useful to our lives? Would you bring us an encouragement that we could really need today? Uh, Would you bring us some comfort? Would you bring us some refocus? Whatever we need, Lord, would you do it in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, as many of you would know, I live in a family with lots of young children. I have five kids in my household, ten and under. And let me give you a little snapshot of life with lots of young children that might be hidden to some of you at least. Um, So imagine this scene, if you will. For the 800th time in the day, you hear screams coming from the living room, which I think would be accurate. And proving that there is a God, you still have the energy to run in and see what the problem is, despite having done that 799 times so far in the day. And you go in and you discover this scene. One young child is methodically kicking another young child again and again and again and again and again, and the other child is in fact screaming. And so you try to figure out what's going on with this. And so you say, uh, your, your insightful line is, what's going on? And the one who's doing the kicking explains how the one getting kicked had just repeatedly done some annoying thing, and so now he's kicking them. And um, so you separate them, you say, well, stop kicking. And then it occurs to you, maybe you should ask the one being kicked, why did you sit there and get kicked? You could, after all, just have stood and walked away. That was within your power. Why didn't you do that? And their answer will be, uh, and I can't express to you how often this is exactly the answer I get, he shouldn't have been kicking me, as if that answers anything. Well, we're in the third week of a series we've called Life is a Game. If life is a game, these are the rules about the Ten Commandments. And believe it or not, this little vignette I've just presented to you has quite a bit of relevance, from my point of view, to what we're going to be talking about today. The Ten Commandments, you'll recall, are this little pithy opening to this long legal code that God gave to Moses to give to his people in the Old Testament. Um, Our idea has been that not only are these Ten Commandments meant to suggest to us what the good life is supposed to look like, they're actually supposed to work together and sort of play off each other in ways that might not at first be obvious. Um, The reason that seems true to me is, on the surface, many of the commandments can seem obvious. So today, for instance, I'll spoil the punchline. Here's the commandment. Four words. You shall not murder is the commandment for today. Well, for most people, we say, you know what? I'm in agreement with that one. I probably shouldn't murder. I'll check that one off my list of something I shouldn't do. And if by some chance I do murder someone, I will fully understand I've broken one of the commandments of God, and fair enough. And that's really all we have to think about it. Uh, But how does not murdering fit in with what we talked about last week, about the importance of having this day of rest each week because of God, this Sabbath day? They seem like just different things. Or about honoring God's name, which we talked about the previous week. It seems like this sort of disparate collection of truisms that um, are good enough insofar as they go, but don't seem to do much beyond, say, the obvious. Actually, I think they are intended by God to be ten things that, if we really get to the heart of them, are transformative to our lives. And that requires seeing how they play off of each other. Um, So, today's commandment, not to murder, seems to me to continue to fill out this picture of what it looks like to follow God who actually does things on our behalf. So last week, we looked at this idea of taking, as I said, a Sabbath day, one day out of seven, of rest. And it seems like a lot of the heart behind the commandment to a Sabbath day is that um, if we take a Sabbath day, we have to have to believe that God will cover the slack, 
That if we don't work, we're still going to live. That God will do it himself. And that requires a belief in a supernatural God. Um, I think today's uh, commandment not to murder actually has ties in with that. Jesus, for instance, gives us his take on this commandment in his famous Sermon on the Mount, where he quotes it. It's on your program, and Jesus says this. You have heard that the law of Moses says, do not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the high council. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So, ouch, that's quite a severe statement. We think, well, I was signing off on not murdering. Deal. But I can't call someone an idiot. I can't be angry at someone. That seems like a bit more of a challenging uh, bar. And it doesn't seem like quite the same thing as murder, for instance. Everyone gets angry, I think we would say to ourselves. Uh, I can certainly say my young kids, despite our repeated warnings not to do it, have called each other an idiot so often that they're going to hell, like, repeatedly, just from that alone on these standards. What do we do about that? As I think about anger, because it seems like Jesus takes this commandment not to murder, and suddenly he just whips it around, and he makes it a commandment not to get so angry that we get abusive, I suppose, might be one way to put it. Now, I, on the one hand, am not a person particularly prone to anger from my point of view, though I'm not going to tell you endless stories about how I am prone to anger. Um, I'm a headier type of person. I'm a little cut off from my emotions. I'm not a passionate, zesty person who wants to punch people's lights out if they cross me. I'm more, I'm a little bit more removed in that sense. So in that, I, it's easier for me, I suppose, to obey Jesus' command than others, and it's impossible for me to obey Jesus' commands. Small things are constantly going on that I have to be aware of, or sadly, not. Um, I remember when my wife and I first moved here. We moved here from California, and like everyone else, these strange traffic customs both baffled and enraged me, I found. And uh, my wife Grace is a little bit more of a fiery temperament than me, so it enraged her more. Things would happen all the time when we would go out on a drive that struck us both, and particularly her, as incredibly rude. And so I would just notice it was rude. She would reach over from the passenger seat and start laying on the horn on my behalf, and then... <laughs> People would come and shake their fist at me for having honked, and I would look at her, you're going to get me killed, and she would say, they deserve to get a honk. And if you aren't going to do it, somebody had to. The heavens cried out for that person to be honked at. I think, okay. I learned about this odd thing that perhaps you've discovered, that perhaps is true in your neighborhood, but is certainly true in my neighborhood. This thing I never would have guessed, I never heard of before moving here, that I like to call local rules for traffic. So there are certain places around town that rules supersede the laws of the road that you just have to know because you live there, but it can take a while to discover. So where I used to live, there was a two-way stop. I guess if you're coming from this direction, there's a stop sign, and then you're coming perpendicular, there's also a stop sign, and there was sort of, you couldn't go past that. And um, what I discovered was that during rush hour, people coming from this one direction never stopped, wouldn't even slow down at the stop sign, would barrel through. And uh, that was the local rule. And it enraged me every time they did it. It didn't seem fair. One, because I was always coming from the other side, so I would just have to watch them barrel through during high traffic times, and it was incredibly slow to get through that intersection if you were coming from my direction, and needlessly so. There were, in fact, two stop signs. And so one time I tested my theory. I knew people were barreling through. I got sick of it, so I just pulled out in front of someone who was planning to barrel through, who then, of course, almost hit me. And um, he got out of his car, quickly got out of the car, came over to me, started shouting at me and shaking his fist. Well, I was not backing down from the likes of him. So I got out too and said, I think I had irrefutable proof. What do you imagine I said? That's a stop sign, perhaps you've noticed. 
And then he shouted at me, and the words idiot may have come out of our lips to each other, I'm not sure, and we you know, angrily drove on. I live currently near a rotary where the local rule is, there's three entrances to the rotary. If you're coming in one entrance, the local rule is, whatever you do, you do not stop for traffic already in the rotary. You barrel through, and you cut them off, you get yourself on the rotary from one side, that, and everyone does it. From the other two sides, you stop and obey the traffic laws, and if people are in the rotary, you wait until you have a space, and if you were to barrel in, you'd get honked at. On the one side, though, if you don't barrel in, you'll get honked at. This is crazy making. Who can live in a place like this? What on earth? Now, obviously, this sort of stuff is a small-scale example. I'm not going to have to live with any of these people unless we do, in fact, hit or kill each other, in which case, I suppose, our estates will forever be linked as they sue each other over the proceeds from the murder trial. But um, in this instance, those small things, where you realize a little flash of something comes out of us, I think murder, on Jesus' terms, is taking into our own hands a situation that we're frustrated with or that feels intolerable to us, rather than leaving it to God. Uh, we get, for instance, further amplification on this theme in a famous passage in Romans 12, which is printed on your program, which says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And that's what I call a motivator, right? So if I'm nice to my enemy, I know that in, in the end, he's going to get fiery coals rained down on him because I gave him a drink of water and he took it. I love that. That's so practical. <laughs> do, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what's Paul's point, even with the little zinger there? I think his point is that when we take revenge, even if from our point of view, revenge is completely deserved... We're taking something that God asks us to leave to him that's damaging to us, damaging to them, and strangely damaging to God. Do we actually trust that God will repay? That if, if some justice needs to happen, and we can't figure out how that justice will happen unless we make that person pay emotionally or in some other way, um, that we're not actually believing there's a living God. There's a God who acts. We're believing that God's dead and it's up to us. And we're encouraged not to do that. Anger of this sort... I think we're using as a, an attempt that never works to try to shame people into being more agreeable to us. So when uh, I cut the guy off who was trying to run the stop sign like everybody else, and he shouted at me and I shouted at him, I was trying in my own small way to stem the tide of all these people who, who barreled through the stop sign and to let him know that his behavior was shameful and that I was mad at him. So I was trying to kind of muscle him into seeing things my way. I don't believe it worked is my personal point of view. But the point is, when we don't murder in this sense, we aren't abusively angry in this way, we put other people's behavior back on them and put my response back on me. So, back to my kids. Um, my child is livid at their brother for continuing to kick them, though the kicked child doesn't, in fact, do what they have the power to do, which is stand up and walk away to another room. They could do that, and they would not get kicked anymore. Why don't they do that? Because they would rather get kicked and be able to be angry and judge their brother. That's more fun than not being kicked. It's, far, it's worth the kicking to be able to shame them and let them know that you're mad at them and they're horrible than to move. Uh, I would have the option, in theory, to not go through that intersection. It's inconvenient, but there are other ways around it. I don't have to subject myself to it. I have choices. But I sort of prefer anger, prefer judgment. 
Continual anger, I think, is destructive in lots of obvious ways. So clearly it has continual anger would have health consequences on us. Our bodies are meant to run on kind of that continuing surge of adrenaline. Uh, it alienates us not just from the objects of our anger, who, as in my case, are often strangers we won't see again. I'm alienated, I suppose, from all these strangers who obey local rules that I don't like. But it's also anger, in, in the end, will alienate us from people close to us, even if they're not the people we're initially angry at. If we let anger go in our lives in general, we're going to be an angrier person, which will have its consequences in relationships we do care about. Um, that's what anger does. So what's the alternative? I wonder if the first and most primary alternative might be put this way. Resolutely keep appropriate boundaries. Resolutely keep appropriate boundaries. Um, the Bible keeps coming back to is that whenever there is a dispute, there are actually three parties in the dispute. There's us, there's the person we're angry at or who is angry at us, and then there's God, actually a third party in that little fight. So I have my point of view and the person I'm mad at has their point of view. Um, anger is part of how we each try to bully the other one into either coming around to our point of view or feeling ashamed of themselves that they won't. But the third party is God, and God promises that if we trust him, he'll work it out. He will sort through it. He will repay. Um, I've, having five young kids, I've read endless books about how to be a good parent. I don't know if they've actually made me a good parent, but I have lots of terms now about why I'm not. And one of the terms I learned, which I've worked out, I think makes a lot of sense to me, is, um, th is that there are bad things, bad sorts of consequences you can give your kids for their bad behavior. And the bad kind of consequences are what the books call emotional consequences. Uh, that's what we're supposed to avoid. The idea is that if your child misbehaves, the key is to find what they call a reality-based consequences that will cost your child, rather than an emotional consequence, which is just shaking with anger and showing them how you're so mad at them. They're saying, that's bad. That actually makes households dysfunctional and kind of crazy-making if the consequence for your child's misbehavior is they know you're going to scream at them. Because then their only choice is resentment towards you, shrinking back, alienation from you, all that sort of bad stuff. So what these books suggest is don't scream at them. Emotional consequences are bad, but make their behavior have its own natural consequence that will train them. So the classic story is about the, you know, the teenage girl who in the midst of her teenage rebellion and her general anger at the world uh, is prone to slam doors whenever she's mad at her brothers. Uh, I guess this girl had three brothers. Uh, or her parents. And so the slamming door gets to be a problem, and so the dad ultimately says to the girl, I don't want you to slam your door anymore, and later in the day she slams her door again. And then he says, tell you what, here's the deal. The next time you slam your door in anger, I'm going to take your door off the hinges for a week, and in a week I'll put it back on. Okay? And uh, that day something comes up, she slams the door again, and he's not angry, he just goes down to the shop and she watches him. She goes, uh-oh, I slammed the door. And then dad, whistling a happy tune, goes down to his toolkit, opens it up, takes out a hammer and chisel, walks over to the door, kind of not worried about it all, takes the hinges off, takes the door, takes it to the basement, whistling a happy tune, puts the tools away, doesn't even comment on it. Now for a week, a teenage girl has no privacy. She can't go into her own room. She's got three brothers. That's it. She wants to change clothes. She better go into a closet. She can't do it in her room. And, and uh, when the door went back on, I, as I understand it, the door was never slammed once. Very quietly put back. Reality-based consequences. That's the prime example. Um, with my traffic stories, again, the thought is that I can will the sea of other drivers into doing what I want them to do if I'm just angry enough at them, you know, if I just shout or fulminate or whatever else. But the only way I can have appropriate boundaries is, again, to change my behavior. I'm in control of that. 
if I, I can understand, if I'm planning to go through that intersection, here's what I can expect at certain times of the day. It just will be. And so I can either own my own decision that I chose to go through that intersection. I didn't have to. I could have gone around. It would have been a little bit less convenient, but I could have chosen it. But instead, I chose to go here. It's not their fault they're barreling through the stop sign or barreling into the rotary. It's not their fault. That's just, what this, that's just the deal here. It's my issue. And if I'm mad about it, then I just shouldn't have gone there, and I can make other choices. Um, resolutely keep appropriate boundaries. I think is the first way through um, keeping Jesus' commands not to murder people through abusive anger. If we lose our boundaries, if we feel like everyone else's problem is our problem, we're lost, I think, in this. Secondly, I can bring peace instead of war. I can bring peace instead of war. So again, when we're angry, we're tempted to pull out the big guns that Jesus describes of cursing someone or calling them an idiot, kind of a high level of fairly abusive anger. When we're tempted that direction, we can do, it's sort of a churchy phrase, but churches would often counsel you to do this thing called come in the opposite spirit. And that's not a bad phrase, though a bit churchy. So if they bring heat or cursing, you bring blessing. You do the exact opposite of the thing that's there. Um, Jesus, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. If you're a peacemaker, you get to be one of God's children. You aren't bringing war, you're bringing peace. Right as this church was getting started, my wife Grace and I had the longest running fight of our marriage. To that, uh, up to that point and since. We've never had a fight that's lasted longer. And here's why. During the first two years that we were here in Boston, before this church got started, uh, we had a bunch of challenging dynamics on the team that was going to be planting the church, and particularly with one really gifted, uh, really important member of the team who everybody loved and had been super blessed by, but who was going through all sorts of life challenges and crises and behaving inappropriately in some of it, and sort of causing problems, and conti continually causing problems, which was difficult, because everyone in the midst of it loved this guy, was really helped by him, had owed him a debt, and wanted the best for him, but nonetheless, it was getting crazy, and he was doing things that increasingly just put all of us under a, a fair amount of stress just all the time. And Grace had her opinion about how we should address the challenge this guy was bringing, and I had my opinion, and they were pretty different. And Grace felt like I was the only one, actually, who had kind of the emotional relationship and who had the leadership on our team who could actually take action. Nobody else had the power to do what she wanted me to do. I was the only one really who could do it. And so I couldn't just say to her, well, if you want to do that, you do it. She said, I can't, you have to do it. And I refused. I felt like it was just not what God was calling me to do. I, I wouldn't do it. And so we were at loggerheads. And we stayed that way for probably a year. And in the midst of that year, there was all this stress. The stress did not go away. And whenever the stress happened, she would feel it again. Why doesn't Dave just get us out of the stress? He can solve this, and I wouldn't do it. And so we would, we would just have that fight again and again. And I would feel disrespected, and she would feel unloved. And we're going around this block. And one day, in the midst of those tensions, it happens again. It flares up, and suddenly we're right back at it. And um, one of us just decides, I'm out of here, I can't handle it. Not I'm out of here like I'm leaving, but just like I gotta get some space. So just, it's actually running down the stairs to get to our car, to just get some space and leave the house. And the other one's chasing him down the stairs, still continuing the conversation, so it's quite heated. And uh, the one of us gets in the car, turns on the, the ignition, the other one pulls open the passenger door, and in that same heated tone of voice, while the one person's trying to drive out, says this. You know what's the worst part about this fight? 
I'll tell you the worst part. We're at total loggerheads here. We're so mad at each other. Each one of us feels so unloved and so dissed by the other one. And yet, you are the best person I've ever met. I don't trust anyone's connection to God or love for me as much as I trust yours. And it's so hard to be so mad at a person I love and trust and respect as much as I do you. But that also gives me hope that we're going to get through this. Because if I can't get through a fight like this with you, I have no hope. Because you're the best person I've ever met. Slam! And the window slowly rolls down on the passenger side and says, and the person in the car says, you know what I'm mad at you about now? That! I'm mad at that! Because I can't stay mad at you if you keep talking like that, and I want to stay mad at you today. (laughs) Puts up the window and drives away. Come in the opposite spirit. That actually was a turning point in that conversation for us. When uh, we kind of came back together, we realized it had really died down, that it had broken something, and we found ways through that conversation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Let me take a little interlude here to see if we're on the same page about why Jesus, in talking about murder, would say that this sort of dismissive, contemptuous, maybe abusive anger is the same thing, is murder. Well, I think we can say, at least in the eyes of the law, no, it's not. So Jesus may be drawing an analogy to murder. It may be like murder in certain ways. But we're talking about things, obviously, that are in a different order of magnitude. If we call someone an idiot or curse someone, maybe our conscience will prick us, and we'll feel bad about it later, and we'll realize, hey, I may have an anger issue, and I should watch that. But we're going to feel a lot better about that than if we've actually killed somebody. That will have different impact on our life. They're different things. But what if, strangely enough, they have more in common than we might think? So what if the universe is, as I believe it is, all about only one continuum? It's like there's a line between heaven and hell, as it were, and there's things in between, a continuum. And what if heaven is all about ultimate connection, ultimate intimacy on all levels, between us and God, between us and everybody else in heaven? There's there's nobody... Uh, calling people an idiot or cursing people in heaven. We're connected. We're truly working things out. And, and strangely, we're connected with ourselves, that we know um, who we are at the deepest levels. We understand and love ourselves, strangely enough, more and more and more as we do others and as we do God. So that's on the heaven side. What if hell is the exact opposite? What if hell is about ever-increasing isolation from others, from ourselves, and from God? It's about alienation and isolation. And what if in hell... We're so mad at everybody that person after person becomes dead to us. We cut them off. They're dead to us because they did that. They ran through that stop sign. You're dead to me, buddy. You know, and something again and again and again. And every time we kind of say in our hearts, you're dead to me, we're murdering that person. Meaning the, the hope of connection is gone. And that's actually the most important thing on earth. From strangers to people we love to everybody. Every time that little mini emotional murder happens, We're cut off from yet another person. And every time that happens, what if we're cut off from God and cut off from ourselves? We're building this kind of callus around our lives that's going to increasingly isolate us and move us towards the worst thing. What if that's why Jesus says, let me tell you about murder. This is murder. I read a plaintive letter to the editor in the Globe last week that struck me along these lines. It was from an angry mom who didn't like the way her child was treated, and she wrote the Globe to say why. And so there's a lot of that energy here, but it's sort of a touching letter. And here's what it says. The headline the Globe gave it was, Strangers should not be so quick to judge kids. From January 20th of this year. My eight-year-old son is mildly to moderately autistic. 
Most people would not be able to identify that there was anything wrong with him. He functions highly enough that we visit a variety of public places without incident. Therefore, I thought the Museum of Science would be a good place to take him on a recent rainy day. My son was in the spaceship exhibit. I stood in front while the children were inside the ship. There was quite a crowd, but I didn't notice anything unusual. After a few minutes, I saw an adult male yelling at my child and ordering him to look at him when he spoke. Parenthetically, an autistic child will not look at a stranger when this person is talking. I asked this man what had happened. He said, that boy pushed my daughter right onto the floor for no reason. I apologized and went to get my son. The man's response was, that nasty little boy. I don't excuse my son's behavior, and I am well aware that he needs to learn to keep his hands to himself. I am writing because I want to inform that gentleman and any person who would be so quick to judge that they should avoid making hurtful comments about any child. There are many parents who would appreciate the understanding. From Lynn Tetralt in Woburn. So on the one hand, she's a hurt mom, and she's angry at the situation, and she's writing out of that hurt. On the other hand, I was sort of struck by this letter. Her point was that there was more going on in that altercation than the other father understood, than he had access to understand. It's a little piece of information that the child he's yelling at who won't look at him is autistic. And autistic kids can't, don't ever look any stranger in the eye. Would that have impacted the conversation? Wouldn't have meant, as she points out, that the autistic boy should have pushed his daughter down, however that happened. Obviously, that's a bad thing. Um, and his cursing of the boy and the parents by calling him nasty and saying that implicitly they have raised a nasty child, his cursing of them was both wrong, he's autistic, He's not, he, may be, he may also be nasty, but he's definitely autistic, and that factored in. It was both wrong and it was damaging, and it was against the heart of what Jesus said in just this way. Now, at the same time, am I any different? When the you know, 27th straight person barrels through the stop sign, and I judge the 27th straight person who's done it, uh, for, I judge them for living by the local rules of the road, do I actually know their motivation for running through that stop sign? Do I, can I actually prove that they're just rude and don't care about anybody but themselves? Is that, is that accurate? Do I have any way of knowing that that's accurate? I, I would suspect I don't. What I discovered was that I was disobeying you shall not kill with every single instance of that. That once I pulled back from the brink and tried to do a different thing, to bless every driver that I was tempted to curse, to say, well, God bless that person. They're just living the way everybody in this neighborhood lives. They're no different than anybody. It's not like half of them run the stop sign and half of them don't. Everybody runs the stop sign. Everybody barrels into the rotary because it's the local rule. It's just, it's just what it means to live in this neighborhood. And there's probably nice people and mean people all mixed together in those cars. I wouldn't really know. It's just the local rule. And I bless every driver. I do not curse them. Um, what that suddenly helped me do is embrace that I actually lived here. That I wasn't living in this former place that I used to live, which didn't have local rules like that. I was actually living here. And this is the way this place worked here. And I now was a citizen here too. And so <clears throat> I discovered that I now obey some of those local rules myself. That I, that I barrel into that rotary on, on the side where everybody barrels into the rotary. And I make sure I'm very cautious on the sides where nobody barrels into the rotary. I've learned the local rules like everybody else. Finally, don't let the sun go down on your anger. <clears throat> Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I'm just quoting a passage of the Bible, which I'll read you in a moment. Um, one of the most humane, actually, passages in the entire Bible, in my experience, is this key thought from Paul in Ephesians 4, which is the last scripture on your program. Be angry, writes Paul, but do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Be angry as a command. 
That's unexpected, given especially what Jesus just said, be angry, but don't sin. As if there is anger where you are sinning, and anger where you are not sinning. As if there's choices to be made. There's the good and the bad. And then there's a, there's a limit. Even the good anger has a limit. You can only keep that good anger until sundown. After sundown, even that is sin. There's no good anger once the sun goes down on that day. But there's a gap that Paul seems to describe as if you should be doing something between the moment of your anger and sundown that's really positive. You have an opportunity in front of you. Well, what might that be? It seems to me that the good thing you can do in that gap is learn a bit about where that anger is coming from in you. It seems to me that when we're angry at someone else, we don't typically think, gee, I've got anger issues. Typically what we think is, no, I'm just responding to the provocation of that rude person, of that bad person, of, dare I say, that idiot, of whatever our heart's saying. It's their fault. They did it. I'm just responding as anybody would respond. It's not about me. Um, I mentioned a few sermons back that Grace and I saw a counselor early on in our marriage. And one of the many gifts this counselor gave us in our short time together was a tool to help us with our anger with each other and in the world. It was so helpful, and I'm going to give it to you. It was what she called the 1 to 10 scale, which she said we should consider using. And here was the idea. The idea was, whenever you're angry at something, try to rate the cause of your anger on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of how serious it is. Or if you're so angry you can't do it, find some impartial person to help rank it, 1 to 10, on how important it is. So if someone steals your life savings and goes and lives in the Bahamas and laughs at you and calls you to mock you about how they're living on your money while you're living in poverty, that's a 10. Can we say that's a 10? (laughs) Somebody obeying the local rules of the road and blowing through a stop sign like everybody else with them, A, might not even register on the scale, but let's say... A one, you know, if I'm mad, maybe it's a one. If it's, if it's really egregious and they're, like, flipping me off as they go by, a two, you know, I don't know. So there's, a, you know, but it's not, you know, it's a one or a two. So what she would say is, okay, so the guy blows through the stop sign like everybody else. Let's say it's a one. Rate your anger. How, on a scale of one to ten, how mad are you at that person? And I say, eight. Eight. She says, therein lies your problem. <laughs> So you've got a one provocation and an eight response, meaning you're pretty angry. You could get angrier, but you're pretty angry. That seven gap is what I want you to think about today. Why are you, why are you not, if, if it was a one provocation, maybe, why aren't you angry at a one level? Uh, to whatever degree you're more angry, that's about you. That's not about them. What's that tapping into? Something in your past? What does that remind you of? And I thought, wow, I never even thought of that. Sometimes I would go to friends, and I would get together with a friend, and they would say, how are you, Dave? And I'd say, I just got so ticked off on the way over here. I got so ticked off at my kids. And they'd say, oh, really? I'm sorry, what happened? And I would say, well, they did X, and I felt this. And I would do the one to 10 thing with them. I'd say, actually, do you mind if I take a minute? Because um, just you help me. You're objective on this. So that, my child did that. On a scale of one to 10, how severe is that? And if they have kids, they would say, severe, all kids do that. If they don't have kids, they might say, it's a five, because it sounds awful until you realize all kids do that. Um, But whatever it is, they say, all right, it's a two. And I'll say, I think my anger was at least a five. Well, that's a three gap. I wonder what's going on with that. And they would help me. They'd say, gee, I wonder if it reminded you of this. And I just found that to be so useful. It actually helped Grace and me in our fights, although it can be unuseful when the one uh, who uh, is not, the one who's the object of anger from the other one says, It seems to me, like if it was me, it seems to me, Grace, that my provocation to you was at most a two and that you're responding at a nine. Just seems to me. That usually gets her up to ten at that point. I I can can just get all the way. I can close the gap if I do that. But um, 
but nonetheless, it's actually helped us because we realized it, it, it can really make us say, it's true. I am angrier than you deserve. Now, don't get me wrong, I am angry, <laughs> but it's probably something going on here that's not entirely about you. I wonder what that is. So consider using the 1 to 10 scale uh, in the spirit of not letting the sun go down on your anger. And then, when the sun does go down, you're, you're done, right? Your, your window is over. Whether that's helpful anger you're trying to work through, or unhelpful anger where you're raging, don't let the sun go down on it. Once the sun's down, you've, got to, you've dealt with it as much as you have, you have to let it go. That seems to be the rule. Beyond, you have to start clean every day. So in the Ten Commandments, we're told, through Moses, from God, don't murder. You shall not murder. Jesus takes that and takes quite a bit of a richer approach to it, saying, you have heard that the law of Moses says, do not murder. If you murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are angry with someone, you're subject to judgment, which seems like quite a high bar. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the high council, whatever that is, but it doesn't sound like something you want to do. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Well, I'll tell you, in the face of those strong words, it seems to me that we're given an opportunity as followers of Jesus to be people of life and not people of murder and death. To be about life with our lives in every respect. And that's a powerful thing. As if all the evil forces of the universe are conspiring to push us just the other way, towards destruction, towards lopping off connection after connection, towards millions of people being dead to us, as it were, and slowly encircling us until before we know it, we're in hell. Jesus is holding out just the other possibility for us. And the Ten Commandments are offering us a way of life that requires trust in a God who will work on our behalf, who can be trusted to make things turn out right. Let's be people of life, shall we? And not people of death. Stand with me, if you would. Let's pray about just that. Well, Father, I invite you to send your Holy Spirit now, and we know you do when we ask. Would you just come powerfully here and Lord, would you touch our hearts with anything that's relevant? Would you touch our hearts if we feel like, oh yeah, I can definitely relate to anger as a general issue, or I don't know about that, but there's this, this, and this where I'm prone to anger, or wherever it is that's true for us, Lord, would you touch our hearts right there? Call it to mind. And wherever that is, God, we give to you now, and we say, would you take that? That's not where, I don't want to be that person. I want to be a person of blessing and not of cursing. I want to be a person who um, does not let the sun go down on my anger. I want to be a person who's moving towards connection and not moving towards isolation. Would you make that possible, Lord, in Jesus' name? Would you take whatever we've handed you and remove it from us? And Holy Spirit, would you bring healing right now in Jesus' name? Right in that spot. Would you bring peace where there's been tumult in us? And for some of us, God, I think we're newer at this. We're newer at even following you at all. We're newer at seeing you do things like this. And so I pray for those of us who feel like, wow, this is pretty new for me, even the idea that God would do such a thing. I pray for a special gift for those of us in that situation right now, a special gift of encouragement, a special surge of faith that this could be possible, that there could be a whole fresh way of life that we've just walked into right now. Give us that faith. Give us that encouragement, Lord, this moment, if you would. And Father, for those of us who are more uh, veteran at this, God, make us like new. Make us as innocent as we were as kids and remove whatever scales that anger, judgment, contempt, abuse have pulled out of us, Lord.
soften us up and expose us to joy even now in Jesus' name. Amen.